Let's turn in the Word of God once again to the first letter of Peter. First Peter, and we're in chapter 2 this morning. Peter's going to be dealing with the subject of Christian identity, who we are in Jesus Christ. And this is especially important today because a lot of Christians don't have a clear biblical sense of who they are in Christ, what it means to be a Christian. Likely, this is because a lot of messages preached on the subject of identity today have little more to do than with building up self-esteem. But you know, interestingly, Peter's not after building up our self-esteem. Peter's after building our hope in Christ. And he knows that grasping a hold of this message, who we are according to Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ, will prepare us for living out our Christian testimony in a world that's increasingly hostile to the Christian faith. So let's stand together out of respect for the reading of the Word of God. Let's read our text, 1 Peter. It'll be 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's seek our Lord's help in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we approach you in the name and merits of your Son, Jesus, and we ask, Lord, that you would speak to us that you have always been so faithful to do out of your Holy Word. Father, we thank you for your Word that, as we saw last week in 1 Peter, is able to make us grow. Uh, We were able to grow by being nourished by the truth of your Word. And so, Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would administer to each and every heart the truth that is needed to enable us to grow this morning. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to respond. Change us, Lord. Don't leave us the same, we pray. We pray that you would give us awe, give us humility in relation to who we are in Christ, Father. Open our eyes, and we pray if there be somebody who has not entered into your fold, they are not yet identified in Christ as one who has been born again, we pray that you would draw them to your saving grace as well. Father, we pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Well, most of us derive our identity from three things. 
First, we tend to derive our identity from what we do. And I don't think this is a mystery to any one of us. When we meet someone, what do we tend to ask? We say, what do you do? What do you do for a living? It's one of the ways we assign identity. Secondly, we tend to derive our identity from what it is we obtain. And we know this because for many, it's a car. For many, their life is about their home, uh, their properties, their estate, or maybe even something sentimental that they own, their possessions, their collections. Perhaps it is wearing designer clothing. Thirdly, we tend to derive our identity from how we look. Many seek their identity in beauty, in their appearance, again, their fashion, or their youthfulness, their strength. It is what we do, what we obtain, how we look. For many, this is their identity attachment. But Peter has already summarized the truth concerning all these things in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 24. Do you remember? He said, all flesh is like grass, and all the glory, all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off. You see, what we do, what we obtain, and how we look, all these identity markers are not permanent. They're transient. And grounding your identity in them then is a huge mistake because you're setting your hopes on the flower of the field. Sure, it's impressive. Sure, we can talk about it all we like. But ultimately, it's just here today and gone tomorrow and subsequently forgotten. So Peter's already implied we need an identity in something permanent. That is based upon the eternally enduring word of God, which he will go on to contrast with all these transient things, the glory of man, the glory of the flesh. No, he says we ought to be about the glory of the word of God. What God says lasts forever. But there's another important detail backgrounding today's text, and it's the fact that Peter's Christian readers are suffering for their Christian faith. These Christian readers were taking heat for their faith, increasingly so. And sometimes suffering, if it's intense enough, can cause us to, or influence us, to question just about everything. Maybe you can relate to that. Uh, Ever found yourself there? Maybe you're presently uh, or recently have been undergoing such a time of suffering. It's so intense that you begin asking yourself, who am I really? What is my life really about? Well, even in the most difficult seasons of life, Peter wants Christians to confidently grasp their identity in Christ, to grasp our identity as the blessed people of God. In fact, for the rest of his letter, Peter is going to go on and give us instruction on how we can live as Christians in a perverse world. But preliminary to living as Christians is grasping our Christian identity. And so in this text, Peter's really emphasizing that we must understand who we are in Christ. And I believe the main point then of verses 4 through 10 here is that Christians must have confidence in their new identity. That is their Christ-given identity. Peter raises three realities in this text and these three realities offer us confidence in our new identity. So first of all, we need to get a hold of the fact, reality number one, Christ radically redefines us. According to Peter, our Christian identity is not defined by our resume, 
our possessions, our charm, or abilities. Our Christian identity is defined by Christ. The main verb in verses 4 and 5 is translated being built up. And it's describing what Christ is doing with his people. Remember verse 3, Peter's just described the kindness of the Lord. Well, that Lord is the Lord Jesus. And now Peter says in verse 4, and coming to him that is coming to the Lord Jesus Christ as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. When we come to Christ, he redefines who we are. Now, how so? How is that? Well, verses 4 and 5 give us three ways Christ redefines us when we come to him. First of all, for one thing, he makes us part of a new community. He makes us part of a spiritual house. Peter says, coming to him as to a living stone, verse 5, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. Now stop right there. This spiritual house is a spiritual community. It's a community, a metaphor of a community of God's redeemed. Christ is building this community out of his redeemed. Stone upon stone upon stone, Christ is building the spiritual house with each and every soul he redeems. And there's several beautiful truths here. For one thing, this spiritual house is the personal building project of God. Peter uses a present passive indicative when he says, you, as living stones, are being built up. You are being built up. We aren't the one doing the building. Preachers aren't the ones building the spiritual house. Great professional style music isn't building up this house. Great programs in the church isn't building Christ's spiritual house. Jesus said, Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Christ is the one building up his house. He's the one building this work. And Peter also wants you to know this building project is not yet complete because he uses a present tense verb. He says, this is being built up. Christ is doing this. The church, from its inception, has been a work in progress. That's why Peter uses this present tense verb. Christ is doing this. He knew Christ was sure to add others, even from his vantage point. And when we come to this place, our prayer ought to be every week, Lord, bless the works of your hands. Lord, add to your work. Because he delights to do that. This is his building project, and it's not yet complete. Because Christ hasn't yet returned. But there's also a synergistic component to this community, this spiritual house Christ is building. And that is united together, we represent something greater than the summation of us all as individual stones. You see, as individual stones, Peter has in mind square stones. That is, stones that have been cut. Cut to size. These are stones that are uniquely shaped. We might even say bricks that are cut. They are made, they are designed for the builder's use. Christian, look at your life from Peter's perspective here. He says you are a stone, a unique stone, 
A stone cut to size. A stone that God has shaped exactly the way he has designed. And Christ has chosen you as his stone, a stone, in his building project. That he might join you to his church. He wants you to be used in his building project. He will lay you down and he will build up others upon you. What good is a stone that's lying by itself? What good is a stone if it's not joined to the building? You know, a stone that's a a brick that's not joined to the building, it's useless to the builder. You don't want stones lying, random stones lying around your bricks, lying around your yard, do you? Well, if you're not connected to Christ's church, you're not serving the purpose for which Christ cut you out. Christ actually cut you out, Peter's implying. He chose you in order that he might use you for the building up of his church. Being joined together, we represent Christ's body. This is one metaphor in scripture. Joined together. The body parts are only helpful if they're connected, if they're functioning together. Other, elsewhere in scripture, we see a spiritual, the, the metaphor of a spiritual house such as here, or even a holy temple like Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You see, we are part of a spiritual community. There is no lone Christian mentality in the Bible. But if you are a Christian, that Christian identity does not exist outside the community of Jesus Christ. To be truly Christian, then, we must abandon the unchristian, self-serving individualism of our Western culture. Church isn't about you being comfortable and doing church online, at home, at your own pace, at your own leisure, in your pajamas or whatever. No, it's about others. It's about being incorporated into Christ's spiritual house. And as Christ lays you down, he will build others up upon you. May God help us to be laid down. And as we stand upon the shoulders of others, may others one day stand upon our shoulders by God's grace. Having come to Christ, Peter's telling us we need one another. We are all members of one another. And as the Bible teaches, we need one another more as the day, or really the end of this age, is approaching. Having come to Christ, he made us part of a new community. But when we come to Christ, we find he also gives us a new nature. Verse 4, Peter says, In coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as what? Living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. Having described Jesus as a living stone, it's no coincidence Peter describes us as living stones. By this comparison, Peter's redefining our identity in terms of our saviors. Now, some religions teach that salvation, the salvation of a human soul, is that individual soul being absorbed into, that is, becoming one with the world soul, or the Brahman, or whatever you want to call it. But the Bible teaches that coming to Christ, we become part of, of a new community, yes, absorbed into the church of Jesus Christ, but all the while retaining our individual identity. Where do we see this? Well, notice Peter acknowledges that we are, individually speaking, living stones, which implies we still retain our own personalities, though joined to the spiritual house. We are living stones. 
God didn't create you to be boiled down or dissolved into this indistinguishable oneness, this great cosmic soup. No, for all of eternity, you will always be you. And I believe that's a beautiful truth when you realize that God intends to make something beautiful out of you. That he intends to make you holy even as he is holy. And as we see here, the fact that Peter calls us living stones, this would be his way of saying our individual identities have been redefined in light of the living stone, who he's named as Christ. Now, I can't think of a more inorganic thing, a more lifeless thing than a stone, can you? In fact, when we want to describe something as being dead, we say it's dead as a stone. Because stones are lifeless. They don't live. But Peter, ironically, paradoxically, he calls us living stones. Think about that. Because even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, dead as stone, yet the living God, who raises the dead, gave us life through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the living stone. And because he lives, we will live also. So we're living stones. He gives us a new nature, praise God. Having come to Christ, he's made us part of a new community, a spiritual house, having given us also a new nature as living stones. But Peter adds that having come to Christ, he also gives us a new purpose. What's that purpose? Well, what's the purpose of this spiritual house? Verse 5. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for, that is for the purpose of, a holy priesthood. Interesting. The spiritual house Peter's just described is a house for God's dwelling. That is because God dwells with and in his people. Scripture is very plain, especially 1 Corinthians, that we are the temple of God. That is, God intends for worship to happen here. I'm not saying necessarily within the walls of his building, but within us as his people. Because we, as the people, are the church. But Peter embellishes the metaphor by giving us now the purpose for this temple of God. And it's not only that we as the people of God make up his temple, but we see we are also a holy priesthood. We're appointed as priests to serve God in his temple. So God dwells in us, and we are the priests who are serving him in this temple. And we must ask, what exactly is this supposed to look like? I mean, what, what, what is the new priestly purpose to which God has called us to serve? Peter says, Christ has made us a holy priesthood in order to offer up spiritual sacrifices. These are spiritual sacrifices because they're no long, there's no longer any need for physical animal sacrifices. That's because Christ has been once for all sacrificed. And he has been once for all offered for our sin. This is not a spiritual sacrifice for sin. All the sacrifice for sin is, that's necessary has been offered in Christ once for all. Hebrews is plain about that. So what are these spiritual sacrifices that we offer to God? What are they for? Well, this would include the sacrifice of praise. Hebrews 13, verse 15 says that through him, Jesus Christ, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that give thanks to his name. Are you doing that this morning? Are you offering God thanks? 
Are you offering him worship? Hebrews 13, 16 goes on to say, do not neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. In other words, spiritual sacrifices would include your service to others. This is very practical. Romans 15, 16 is where Paul is identifying even evangelism and the fruit of gospel witness, souls coming to Jesus as spiritual sacrifices that we offer up to God. So evangelism would be included in this. Psalm 51, 17 says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken spirit and a contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. More than any sacrifice, God wants you to offer yourself. Of course, in your thanksgiving, in your service to others, in your evangelism, he wants your heart. He wants sincerity. He wants 100% authenticity. That is a spiritual sacrifice that you can offer to God this morning. Romans 12.1, Paul tells us God demands that we offer him our bodies. Our bodies as living sacrifices sold out to do his will. Is that your testimony? Is that your offering to God? So in sum, it's plain. Our Christian identity involves a new purpose. It involves this purpose of service to God. But notice, we are to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. And what is that look like? Well, just as you'll find anywhere else in the New Testament, the only offerings, the only sacrifices, the only religion, the only worship that God approves of is worship that is offered through his son, Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because Jesus Christ is the only way to God, as he himself said, John 14, 6. So what defines who you are? Well, according to Peter, Christ radically redefines us. Christian, you must get a hold of this fact and be confident in who Christ has made you in order to live out your Christian identity. But Peter knows that this is easier put into a catechism than it is to put into our hearts. And so I believe that's where he goes next then. He, he offers us a second reality to boost confidence in our Christian identity. Namely, Scripture soundly reassures us. When it comes to our identity and finding our Christian identity, for certain, Christ radically redefines us, but Scripture soundly reassures us. Verse 6 begins with the word for, which is signaling there's an explanation to follow here. Here's a reason. Here's the explanation. You can have confidence in what Peter's just described. For this is contained in Scripture, that is in the Word of God. For the confidence we must have in our new Christian identity, Peter's returning us to Scripture. He's basically saying it stands upon the Word of God. And in verses 6 through 8, he gives us two ways, at least, that Scripture reassures us. And he's going to cite three different Scriptures from the Old Testament. Notice first, Scripture reassures us Christ is God's solution. Christ is God's solution for our salvation. Verse 6, For this is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This citation comes from Isaiah 28, where God is challenging the faith of his people. He's challenging them really to rethink their false security. They've mocked Isaiah's message. They've set their hopes in a political alliance with Egypt to deliver them from the invading Babylonian army. 
Well, in spite of all this unbelief, Yahweh graciously gives a promise of hope to any who will listen. He says in Isaiah 28, 16, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. Now notice Israel's only hope of true security lies in the most, this most remarkable and a mysterious stone. What is this stone? Well, it's a stone laid in Zion. I have preached on Isaiah 28 before. It is a wonderful text. We do not have time to show everything, but I could say, for one thing, this is clearly the Messiah as indicated by Psalm 2, where we read that God sets his king upon Zion. This is the Messiah. And this Messiah is said to be tested. He is a tested stone, just as Jesus was tested. He was in all ways tested like as we are, the Bible says, yet without sin. No one was ever more tested and proven than Jesus Christ. And this costly cornerstone is the most precious Son of God. It is the Son of God whom God sent to lay as a foundation for our faith, for our salvation. By the way, the cornerstone was the most important stone in the ancient structure because it was the first stone that the builders would put down and every other stone would be laid in relation to that cornerstone. Well, when it comes to salvation, the cornerstone is Jesus Christ. This is because Jesus Christ is the first and only to ever live on this earth a truly righteous life. I mean perfectly. I don't care how good you are. You don't measure up to Jesus Christ. You're still a sinner. But Jesus was tried. He was proven. He's perfect. And not only was he righteous, but he was the first and only one to ever live and die and and rise from the dead triumphant over sin. Jesus is called the first fruits of our salvation. He is the foundation of our faith. And in Isaiah 28, we hear God promise then, he who believes in this stone will not be disturbed. In contrast to the judgment that's going to fall on the wicked, God's saying, if you are upon this stone, if your life is upon this stone, your faith is in this stone, that will result in true security. You'll be safe. It's one way of saying those who believe on the stone will be saved. And that's the message of the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Like Israel of old, you must choose. Either set your hope on God's word, or you can seek security anywhere else. But Jesus himself taught in Matthew 7 that unless we build our lives upon what he has said, upon his words, by both hearing and doing what he said, well, there's no safety elsewhere. We will surely be destroyed. Salvation, your salvation is secure only if it's founded upon God's solution. God laid the foundation. That's where your safety is. If your safety isn't where God intends it to be, you don't have true safety, not eternal safety. You need security in the solid rock who is Christ. And we see this in the Old Testament scriptures. Centuries before Christ came, God was predicting his solution was in his Messiah, the Lord Jesus. But another way scripture reassures us of our identity now here is that Christ is triumphant over all the world's rejection. Verse 7, this precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this 
became the very cornerstone. I think this is important because one of the objections, one of the things that can shake a Christian's faith is that so many just don't believe in him. So many around you don't care for Jesus Christ. They think you're crazy. Well, actually, one of the main objections post-modernity raises against trusting Jesus is the fact that most of the world doesn't believe in the Christian God. So why would you? Of course, this was an even greater challenge at the time Peter lived. Just think about that. This is because at that time, Christianity was in its earliest stages. And to make matters worse, Christianity was born out of the Jewish soil. It sprung out of the Jewish scriptures. And so certainly many Gentiles, and these that Peter is writing to, would be, uh, at least in, in the area of Asia Minor, Gentiles would have been inclined to argue if the Jews don't even believe that Jesus is the Christ, they don't even believe on him, why should we? Why should we believe with all this rejection and with the fact that Israel, at least as a general consensus, has rejected the Messiah? Well, Peter answers this objection from Scripture. He points out, Scripture foretold that the Christ of God would be rejected. Peter identifies the precious cornerstone of Isaiah 28 with the rejected cornerstone of Psalm 118. In Isaiah 28, the stone's described as God's solution for our salvation, while in Psalm 118, we have described the stone that is rejected by the builders. It was just read out of our scripture reading today. Psalm 118, 22. Just imagine this precious stone. It's been rigorously tested. It's been measured. It's been proven. It's perfect for the job. But suddenly, for whatever reason, the builders take that stone out of place and they cast it aside as something worthless. Sound familiar? Well, this is exactly what the Gospels tell us happened with Christ. That he came to his own and his own did not receive him. They rejected him. He was despised and rejected of men. While Jesus was ultimately rejected at his trial and crucifixion, yet this same rejection occurs every day, does it not? This isn't simply a a past reality. This is something that's happening all around us all the time. Every time a man or woman chooses to disbelieve Christ, choosing not to worship him, as the solid rock of eternal life. So the rejection is is happening all the time. God predicted it, but there's a plot twist. Citing from Psalm 118, Peter says, in verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected, this stone became the very cornerstone. Plot twist. The stone that's rejected becomes the foundation for everything. How's that? Well, this is surely the same dynamic that the prophet Daniel witnessed in his vision in Daniel chapter 2. Where there, he, he saw in this vision a spectacular statue representing, if you'll read in the context, a succession of earthly kingdoms with all the glory and might of man. But all these kingdoms of the world suddenly come crashing down when a stone, a stone cut without hands, that is a supernatural sort of stone, is seen to strike this image at its feet and the whole edifice comes tumbling down in ruin. What's the point of the vision? Well, this mysterious stone that Daniel saw was Jesus Christ. It's God's king. It's the king that God sends to earth. Christ is the stone cut without hands, which breaks in pieces the nations. And as happens in the vision, Jesus is the stone that then becomes a mountain and fills the whole earth. Because Jesus would say, all authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. 
Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. It doesn't matter who and how people reject him now. You see, you can reject the stone, but he's still there. He still has all authority. And verse 8, Peter goes on to say, and a stone of stumbling and rock of offense. That's a, a description here that he's pulling now from Isaiah 8.14 for Jesus Christ. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom they were also appointed. From Isaiah 8.14, Peter is citing this passage because Yahweh there tells his people that he will become a sanctuary. But both to the houses of Israel, that is the northern kingdom and the southern kingdoms, he says he will become a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over. How amazing. How unthinkable in the time that the prophet wrote that, that Israel would actually stumble over Yahweh, over God. Well, by the way, there's, a, there's certainly an argument to be made in these passages for the deity of Jesus Christ, his identity with Yahweh, that's for sure. But you see Peter's argument here is that the unbelief of so many people, beginning with the house of Israel itself, isn't a challenge to Jesus' claim to be God, to be who he was. Actually, it's an affirmation because it's exactly what God foretold us. Citing from the psalm, citing from Isaiah, the unbelief of so many people fulfills exactly what the Lord said concerning himself and it certainly then reassures us that Christ remains triumphant. He is still the cornerstone. It doesn't matter what people do with him. God is building his community of his redeemed on that stone. And if you're not in that community, you're without salvation. That's what God says. This was his plan from the beginning. Christ remains triumphant in spite of all the world's rejection. There's certainly a lot of reassurance in what the word of God is saying here. So Peter encourages Christians suffering for their faith that they can be confident in their new Christian identity because Christ radically redefines us. And scripture solidly reassures us of that identity. But finally, we can be confident in our new identity because God uniquely recognizes us. God uniquely recognizes us as his own. In contrast to those stumbling over Christ, disbelieving in him, rejecting him, look at verse 9. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Peter takes the same language from Exodus 19 where God uniquely recognizes Israel as his people, and Peter's applying that same language to the church. He's recognizing his church by the same language because Peter is speaking to a predominantly Gentile audience. This is further surprising. He's demonstrating there's an unmistakable continuity in Scripture between God's Old Testament people, the nation of Israel, and his New Testament people, in this church that he has brought together. Between the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God, Peter is applying the same language. In verses 9 through 10, Peter lists five ways that God uniquely recognizes us. Don't forget them. First, he calls us a chosen race. You know that beginning with Genesis 1 and 2, the Bible clearly teaches there's a singular race of humanity. That's why the sin of racism is just ridiculous because there aren't different human races. There's one race. 
We come from one man and one woman. We are one race, the human race, equally, uniquely created in God's image and likeness, the scripture plainly teaches. However, the Bible does teach as well that within our singular human race, there is, spiritually speaking, two humanities. Spiritually speaking, there are two races of mankind, the redeemed and those who are still rebels. And if you want to become a part of the chosen race, God's redeemed, well, all you have to do is do what the Lord's told you to do. Receive his pardon of salvation. Jesus said, all who come to me, I will certainly not cast out. But you reject Christ, you certainly have no hope. Now, we must trust Christ, but at the same time, we read, for all those who have joined God's redeemed, we must remember we only chose him. Why? Because he chose us first. Let that humble us. The second way God uniquely recognizes us is he calls us a royal priesthood. And this title is borrowed from Exodus 19.6, where God identified Israel as a kingdom of priests. And in the greater context of the Old Testament, you'll see this title describe how God intended for Israel to serve him as a kingdom of priests. God intended for his people as a nation to mediate between him and the world. That is, that by following the word of God and, and giving, showing forth the glory of God, they might be a mediator to draw the world to God, to the one true God. I wish we had time to look at that, but it's an excellent study in Scripture. I, do, I will say that given Israel's idolatry, it's very clear to us they failed. Israel did not show forth the glory of the Lord, not as Yahweh intended. But God was using Israel's failure to show us the need for a perfect prophet, priest, and king who would come. And Peter, yet, in spite of all that, he says, we, we are now, as the church, the kingdom a priest. That is, just as Israel was once called to bring people to the living God, we are now called to mediate between God and this world. Our worship is to point the world to the one true God. A third way God uniquely recognizes us is he calls us a holy nation. Don't forget all the ways that Peter's already compared the present church with Old Testament Israel. He's described these churches he's writing to as God's elect, as Exiles scattered abroad as a a holy people in chapter 1. And now he says, you are a holy nation. You who I've redeemed, I've called you to be a holy nation. Which is to say, regardless of how you are living, if you're part of God's redeemed, guess what? God says you are holy. He sets you apart for himself. These things were true of Israel. Now they're true of the church. And by the way, this does not prove the church has literally replaced Israel, Paul will say in Romans 11 that God has not permanently cast off Israel. Not forever. He will one day restore Israel a place in his kingdom. But at the same time, Peter's words remind us God's kingdom has always been bigger. And you just got to study this in the Old Testament. His kingdom has always been bigger than Israel. The kingdom isn't about Israel. It was always about God. It was always about his glory. And it's always about His glory going into all the nations of the earth. A third way God uniquely recognizes us is that he calls us his, or really this is the fourth way, he calls us his own possession. A people for his own possession. Are you a Christian? Use that term of yourself. Do you identify yourself as as belonging to Jesus? If so, you belong to Christ. 
You and everything you have, everything you are. And that would mean you are doubly his possession. Because God created you, so you belong to him first of all. The whole world belongs to the Lord and all the fullness of it, Psalm 24 says. But if you've been redeemed, that means when you sold yourself to sin, God bought you back. You are doubly his. And you know how this works. You know when something's your own possession, it means that you, you reserve all the rights to do with it as you please. You know, at your, at your home, you might paint your bedroom a certain color. And I'm not going to come over and say, why? I don't want you painting that. You can't do that. You've got to paint it the color I like. You don't care about that, right? It's your bedroom. I don't have a say in what you do with what is yours. But what the scriptures are teaching is that we belong to God. Do we treat our lives like our own possession? Do you treat your body like it belongs to you exclusively? It's your body, sure. But does it belong to you ultimately or to God? Yeah, it belongs to God. You are a manager over it. And by the way, you don't have it forever. It's on loan to you. Like everything else you have from God. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, which belongs to him. Now at this point, someone might accuse Christians, hearing all these things about Christian identity, of being so conceited, so arrogant. That's not inclusive enough. You know, you're excluding a lot of people, Peter, to say all this. And, and, you know, isn't that very arrogant to consider yourselves a chosen people by God? Like chosen in a way some other people aren't chosen? Well, let's think about that. Beloved, Peter says, notice, verse 9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. But he says, so that. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This calling, all this identity is for a purpose of proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus Christ. And this involves both worship and evangelism. God's purpose for uniquely recognizing you in all these ways is not to build up your self-esteem. This is about you worshiping the Lord. God has chosen you and ordained you that he might use you to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ. There's a gospel of self-centeredness that's gaining popularity today in churches. It's about Jesus saved me uh, because I'm so special and Jesus wants me to be happy and so on. And you know, there's a, there's a kernel of truth in, in some of those things. We are precious to God for sure, but that's a very stunted gospel the gospel of Jesus Christ is actually that God sent his son to save sinners like us for the purpose of making us servant worshipers. Servant worshipers who proclaim not our own glory, but the glory of our God. The glory of the one who called us out of darkness into light. This isn't about your self-esteem. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about his glory. It's about others. That's what the gospel is about. Now, another response to those who think this all-conceited language for Christians is found in Peter's fifth way that God uniquely recognizes us, and that's from verse 10. He calls us recipients of mercy. Verse 10, For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Confidence in your Christian identity would mean the very opposite of arrogance and conceit. If you have confidence in the things that God's saying here, it means humbling yourself to remember what you were before Christ found you, had compassion upon you, and gave you new life, and included you among his redeemed. There's no way that you could be a true Christian, understand what Peter's saying here, 
without two heartfelt responses. Hear me now. First of all, wonder. A sense of awe. This is like the awe of when a pauper realizes he's actually a prince. And he is an heir to all that the king owns. There's an awe. There's a wonder in realizing this. And I believe we could say that this awe, this wonder again, it doesn't end there. It's not about us. It doesn't terminate on us. But it ultimately will result in worship to our God who is worthy and by his grace, by his mercy, has given us all that we have and made us all that we are. But there's a second then heartfelt response from these verses, and that's certainly humility. When you get a hold of all that God's saying to you, you'll have to admit that I am what I am by the grace of God, as Paul would say. That I was once without mercy, now I have received mercy. What made the difference? Not my lovability, not my attractiveness, but the mercy of Jesus Christ. Christ makes the difference. Life is challenging enough as it is for Christians living in today's culture. And so as Christians, we must hold confidence in who we are, in who God says we are, what God has to say about us. So we must have confidence in the identity that Peter's described here. And you may have heard about uh, this man who suffered from such a severe case of amnesia. He completely forgot who he was. It's a true story. Couldn't remember his own name. Couldn't remember his own family. Couldn't remember hardly anything about his past. Curiously, there was one thing he could recall. And that was his birth date. But I fear there's people, and I've met people, who claim they're born again. And the only thing they can tell you about their Christian identity, as it were, is their birth date. The date of their new birth. If that's you please let me know. I I promise I won't judge you, but I'd love to open a Bible and show you there is so much more to Christian identity and being redeemed by Jesus Christ than having made a decision when you were six or walking an aisle or being baptized or whatever. There's so much more to who we are in Christ. And if you are sincerely a Christian, please know God is speaking to you today. And he wants you to know what he says is true of you. He's calling you to confidently believe what he himself has said concerning you. And only by this confidence will you be prepared to live out faithfully what the rest of this book is going to command us to do. And so this will be all pertinent to our following studies in the book of 1 Peter. But let's conclude with prayer.